our reading this morning comes from Psalm 92, and we'll read uh, the whole psalm. Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox, and have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies, my ears heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree, and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord, they flourish in the courts of our God." They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And we ask God's blessing on the reading of his word this morning. As we look towards the new year and we think about all that's gone on in the year gone by and all that may await us in the year to come, How does church factor into your thinking? Does it factor into your thinking? Is it just one of those things that's always there and it's just a feature of life and it's not something that's necessarily planned or or thought about intentionally? You know you will go to church, but but that um, that will be about it. We'll see what the year holds. It seems to me all the way through Scripture, and you find particularly uh, in the Psalms and as the New Testament uh, is written, you find the New Testament writers drawing on this similar theme. There is a great degree of thought that goes into the worship that God's people give to their God. There is a great degree of effort and of planning and of consideration. And, and it's not something that in our society today we're actually really encouraged to do, to spend time just thinking about what we're going to do. There is an expectation that some planning will be involved, but that you then just run on and do the thing that you've been planning. The idea that you would spend time considering it seems crazy, especially when it's a thing that you're going to be involved in week in, week out over the course of the year, and it doesn't really seem to need much thought. But I want to challenge you this morning as we think about uh, 2020 and what church will be uh, over the course of the next year. I want to challenge you to think about how we consider how we plan uh, our worship, not in terms of what we will preach on or the songs that we will choose Sunday by Sunday, but what our involvement as individuals and as a church together will be in the worship of God because we are His people. This is a psalm uh, that is entitled, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. And as we'll know in an Old Testament context, the the purpose of the Sabbath was to have a day apart from the work of the rest of the week to be given over to God, not necessarily so that the whole day might be spent in the temple or synagogue or wherever it might be, doing nothing but singing or praying or hearing God's Word 
read and explained, but so that the day might be given over for the refreshment of the individual and for reflection on just how good God is. And it seems fitting that as we come to the turn of the year that we do that as Christian men and women, and we think about what worship really is, especially as we, although we don't meet on the Sabbath, as it were, on the last day of the week, we meet on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the Sunday. It's right that I think that we uh, give some thought to this. Consider what it is to give thanks to the Lord, to worship God for all that He has done. That's what today's for. I don't know what today will look like when you leave here and go back home to lunch and whatever else it might be, but is a Sunday generally given over to the theme of reflecting on the goodness of God in your life over this past week or month or year or whatever it might be. I want to encourage you to to consider that as we go through this psalm, because it seems to me we have a, a contrast here. In the first four verses, we find we have uh, God's people pictured. Now, in the Old Testament, it was the Jews. We're looking at this from a New Testament context, and I think it's right to see ourselves in this, uh, in this psalm as, as a Christian people, as God's people. And we find in the first four verses, um, they are pictured as being the sort of people who find ultimate joy, true joy, in worship. We've then got a contrast, and we find what the rest of the world is like who find or seek to find true joy in everything else but worship. And then at the end of the psalm, the psalmist draws on what this will mean uh, for both groups. And so we'll consider this together as we go through. And so we find that as we want to worship together and as individuals, Christian people find true joy in that act of worship. That is one of the reasons why we worship. I don't know if that's language that comes to your mind when you think on the theme of worship, that that is the the seat of your joy, the place that that you find the most satisfaction, the the, the most contentment, if, if I can put it that way. But the psalmist repeats this idea over and over again. He just loves worshiping God on the Sabbath. You get the feeling that there's nothing he loves more than doing that one thing. He says, it's good to give thanks, to sing praises to your name, to declare your steadfast love to the music of the lute and the harp. You have made me glad. I sing for joy. He just constantly repeats the same idea in different ways over and over again. He longs for the Sabbath. He yearns for this day of rest. The week has been hard, but the Sabbath is coming, and there's an opportunity to tell God just how great a God He is, together with all God's people on that day, and I can't wait. It's the highlight of my week. So how do you feel about our Sabbath, about our Lord's Day, about Sunday? Is that how you feel? Do you long for Sunday? Not just because it's a day off of work or school or college or whatever it might be, but do you long for Sunday because you know when Sunday comes, I get to be together with the rest of my church family and we get to sing and pray and hear God's Word and and, and do all of those things. Is that how you think about it? I can give myself over completely to this one thing. In this time we have, on this day, I can think of this thing and nothing else. Just how good God is as our Lord and as our Savior. Because that is what our weekly worship is, isn't it? That's why we do this. We set aside one day a week, one in seven, 
to stop from the usual work, to make time to think about all that God has done for us. As I was preparing this, I was really sort of fighting that constant urge to sort of hum the, the, the tune for one of these songs um, that I'm sure will be familiar to many of you, where, where we're encouraged to count our blessings, name them one by one. Because that's very much the theme of the Sabbath, of the Lord's Day. It's to count our blessings, to think about just how good God is. Look at all the stuff he's done over this past week. Look at the lives he's changed. Look at the change that's happened in my life. Look at the way he's supported me and sustained me. And those moments that I had with this particular family member or that particular person that was just so encouraging or or, or just built me up or, or challenged me. Isn't God good that he's done all of that just in this past seven days? And then we can consider our whole lives and the way that God has guided us and shaped us and blessed us and saved us and and done all of these other things. And then as we dwell on that, as we consider that, we then get to come and sing out loud and pray and tell God how good he is for all of that stuff, for all of those things, all of those people. We come together in prayer and we get to ask that God, that good God, to help us and our loved ones and brothers and sisters in Christ here and all over the world for help. God is willing for us to do that. In fact, he's not just willing, he desires, he commands us to come into his presence in the name of Jesus and ask him to help us because he knows that we're not enough by ourselves. And then we get to sit humbly under God's word and hear it read, and consider what it means, and hear it hopefully explained clearly, so that we then learn more of what God is like, more of the amazing things that He's done, and the things that He wants us to then go and do in response, all in the knowledge that as we try and go and live it out, however difficult it might be, He gives us not just the instructions, but His own Spirit to empower us to do that very thing. Is that not a truly amazing thing? It's all part of our worship. It's all to reveal to us where true joy in life is to be found in every situation. Knowing God, relying on God, adoring God. Do you look forward to church as the week wears by? And you think it's been hard, but Sunday's coming. Thank God. Thank God. I understand if the answer is no, that's not how I feel. I get that. Because there's been weeks where I feel like that. <laughs> and it's, that's a challenge for me. I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller once, and he said, you know, it's difficult for, for preachers. Any other Christian, when they're having a bit of a downtime, they're struggling, they feel that they're, they're distant from the Lord, just turns up at church, and as long as you keep your mouth shut, you can get away with that for a while, and hopefully things will pick up. He said, but a preacher has to stand there and either fake it until it you know, until it becomes reality, or do something on Saturday night so that he is right with God and that things are going well, so that when you stand up on Sunday, you are uh, saying what is true. You're not just sort of lying to make it look like everything um, is rosy and full of joy. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for all of us. But do we look forward to church, to glorifying God together? Because we don't do this anywhere else at any other time, really, apart from maybe the the midweek meeting or if if we go to a Bible study or whatever else. This is kind of it for all of us as a family. What does our service say 
about how we view worship, about how much we love God and how much we, we thank Him. There was a young man who uh, wanted to sort of lead a, a major change in the way that church had been, uh, the way that church had been done in, the, in North America mainly. And he, he found that over the sort of last sort of 50 years or so, church attendance had been declining. And even when you invited people along to church, they would come and they would be bored and think it was irrelevant and, and so on. And so he conducted some surveys and he thought about it all. And, and he went and he spoke to uh, R.C. Sproul, who just went to be with the Lord last year. The, um, he's a great theologian and uh, pastor later in life. And um, he, he wanted to get his opinion. And he said, R.C., um, you know, this is what I've been thinking. We, we need to make church relevant. We need to make it exciting for people, engaging for people, and, and so on. And, and R.C. Sproul said in a way that was very much his kind of way, you know, when I look at my Bible and people encounter God, I see some of them tremble. I see some of them weep. I see some of them die when they encounter the glory and the holiness of God. But I never find any place in my Bible where people encounter the living God and say, eh, that was kind of dull. That wasn't really very relevant to me. That was sort of boring. He said, could it be the reason people find church boring and irrelevant is that they come to church and either God is not there because His Word is not honored and preached, His praises aren't truly sung, and He is not the focus of what's going on? (coughs) Or could it be that they came and the reason they were bored is because they weren't really looking for God? They were looking for something else entirely. It's not just that we want to be excited about church on Sunday, although I do want you to be excited about gathering with your brothers and sisters on Sunday. It's not just that I want people to come and gather Sunday by Sunday and hear and experience something different that they can't find anywhere else, although that would also be great. I want us to experience true joy in God that He is genuinely worth more to us than anything else that we can have or be offered by this world. Because this, perhaps, has never been harder than today. There is so much stuff available to all of us, so much information available to all of us at a cheaper price than has ever been the case. It's hard. We need to make sacrifices. But this is where true joy is found in being God's people together, telling God how great and awesome He is. And it's hard to believe that when you compare it to the entertainments of the world. Now, I'm going to get some uh, rolling eyes, I suspect, but if you use social media, if you're a fan of uh, Facebook or Instagram, I'm not going to say that you should immediately abandon, uh, abandon Facebook or Instagram or anything like that, but, but one of the biggest issues in our culture today, in our lives today, is the fear of missing out. And Facebook and Instagram just pander to that like you wouldn't believe. You see the life that you want to have somebody else living. And even if you're not envious, then you spend your life spectating other people living the life you want to have. I suspect they're probably not living that life. I suspect it's actually predominantly a front. But, but that's what they post on social media. And that's what, we, that's what we soak in when we put things up on Facebook or on Instagram. We want people to like our pictures, to comment on them, to tell us how wonderful it all looked, how great a time you must have had, how fantastic you looked in that picture, whatever else it might be. 
If I offered you an hour of Facebook, of Instagram, an hour of TV, an hour of time on the internet, whatever else it might be, or an hour in church on Sunday, which would you choose? How about if it was late on a Friday evening or early on a Monday morning? What would you choose? Church or entertainment? How about an hour more in bed? Now you're here, so I'm guessing, I'm guessing you've managed to figure that one out. How about an hour more at work? An hour more time spent with your family doing something that you all enjoy? Are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of being together and glorifying God? Because this is what we were made to do, and this is where our joy will be found. This is the big challenge for us as Christian people, is that we move away from not just believing that that's true, we move away from actually living that out. And the thing about moving away from that kind of life is that you lose the the taste for it. You desire other things, you cease desiring that kind of life. But that is the only place true joy can be found. All of the things that I've talked about, whether it's social media or time with family or whatever else, work, whatever else it might be, they, they, they might all be great. They might be truly wonderful. But none of those things will provide you with the joy that will come from worshiping God, giving yourself completely to the task of worshiping God. Nothing. And the reason I can say that with confidence is because Jesus, if you have called upon him for salvation, when he saved you, didn't just tell you, now I've paid for your sins, that's the way you ought to walk. He gave you his spirit. There is something within you that will only be satisfied with what God is satisfied with. And what God is satisfied with is the adoration and the praise of God. And that's it. What else could you give God? God's not interested in an hour on Facebook. He doesn't need an extra hour in bed. He's got all the family he needs. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is nothing God requires in all of the universe, but what he desires is love and adoration and praise. And he lives within you. So as Christian men and women, why don't we pursue that life of worship first and all these other gifts second? Well, we find ultimately it's because of the way of the world. The world can't find joy anywhere. It seeks joy all the time, but it can't find it. And we see in verses 5 uh, through to 9 this picture, these, these kind of words that maybe we felt a little bit uncomfortable with when uh, I read them. How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. Fine. The stupid man can't know. The fool cannot understand this. Well, that seems a little bit harsh. It's not okay to call people stupid and and foolish in our society. And yet, this is what the psalmist does unapologetically. He says, look, the wicked sprout like grass. They're everywhere. They flourish like weeds. There is no holding them down, it would seem. And yet, they are doomed to destruction. They look healthy like the grass of the field. It looks healthy. It grows. It it produces flowers and more seeds to grow more grass. In every way it has the appearance of health, and yet it's doomed. And these people, the psalmist says, are fools. 
They're blind. They can't see the danger that they're standing in. They think they're pursuing joy. They're pursuing destruction and a joy that will never come. They'll never see it. But they'll pursue it all the more for all that they constantly see it over the horizon and never actually have it. It's always jammed tomorrow and not today. And so they keep chasing and chasing and chasing the entertainments of this world. And the problem is that we live in the midst of all of that. We live in a whole world, a whole culture that says consume, take in, absorb, acquire, earn, climb, get status, power, influence, whatever else it might be, do whatever it takes for you to feel fulfilled and satisfied. Now, um, I'm fairly safe in saying this. The folks in Cowdenbeath, I think, were demented with me going on and on about this. And it's not just some bitter kind of response to the amount of Disney films I've had to watch over the last five years. And yet, the theme of every single Disney film, every Pixar movie, whatever animated movie is made for children, the constant theme of them all is pursue your inner desire. Whatever it may be, be true to yourself. Because that is the only way you're ever going to be happy. And yes, there is responsibility that must come with the power and the influence that you have. But you must be true to yourself. You must find out who you are and live out your truth, your reality. And only then will you be truly satisfied. And it's nonsense. It's a lie. Because what sits at your heart apart from God is emptiness. And the more you pursue emptiness, it's like drinking salt water. All it does is damage. You get nothing good from it. I was watching a documentary the other day about this guy who um, in 1982 was sailing from the UK um, over to, well, ultimately I think he was heading to the Caribbean, um, and his boat, his little boat was hit, he thinks, by a whale, and it put a great big hole in the bottom of the boat, and the boat began to sink. So he salvaged what he could, jumped into his life raft, and just hoped. And he spent 76 days adrift at sea in this little life raft with nothing like enough water or food. And he said it got to that point where he said, you feel demented. You look, there is nothing but water as far as the eye can see. It's all you've seen for a month and a half. And you think, I could just drink some of it. I'm so thirsty. He had seven days worth of water and a couple of these little still things to make more drinking water, but it makes teaspoonfuls per hour. And so he said, you're just sitting there so tempted, but knowing that all it will do is kill you all the quicker and you can't drink it. And so it is with the way of the world. It just kills you. And the temptation is so strong to just pursue whatever's inside, whatever it might be, whatever desire I have. But it's salt water. And the irony of the whole situation the psalmist draws on so clearly. As they pursue it, these people think they're wise. They think this is the wisdom of the ages. They think it will bring satisfaction. And look at the Christian fools who are pursuing a God they can't see. A God that they don't believe is really there. They're empty and meaningless and weak and frail, and the psalmist says they don't get it, but they are the very thing they despise, and they can't see it. 
And as we look upon them, you hear the, the note both of judgment but also of pity in the psalmist's voice. They're doomed to destruction, but you, O Lord, are high forever. You sit enthroned over it all. They are weak and pitiable, and you are there, and you make yourself visible to them, but they can't see you, and it's tragic. There is nothing of of any worth, any lasting worth, and yet the world can't see it. I was thinking this week about that, and what was on my mind was a game that I'm sure many of you you will have played with uh, kids, whether you were your own kids or at some party or other here, where you um, you play hide and seek, and you say to your kids, right, I want you to go and hide. I'm going to count to 10. And so you count to 10 very, very slowly, and you're aware there's a lot of running still at nine, um, and an awful lot of giggling and, and clattering about. And then you count to 10, and you walk into the room, and your child or the child that's hiding has just spent 10 seconds to find the best hiding place in the room. And what they're actually doing is lying face down on the carpet, covering their eyes, because if you can't if they can't see you, then presumably they must be hidden beyond your ability to find. And what do you do as an adult? You don't berate them for being a moron and immediately go and pick them up and tell them that their hiding place was the worst hiding place in the history of hiding places. You you go and you look behind every curtain, every cushion, you look under the coffee table, under the dining table, you, you go and look in other rooms, and you make a great noise about it. I wonder where they could possibly be, giggle, 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 coming from the the tiny human shape behind the curtain or the feet sticking out from underneath the cushion or whatever it might be. I mean, it's a picture of foolishness. But that's the picture here. God presents himself to the world in nature and in his word and, and says, here I am. It's so clear that he is there. And yet the world is walking around the room. I wonder where it could be. Where is joy to be found? Is it behind the curtains? Is it under the table? And all the while you're thinking, it's right there. And unlike the adult in hide and seek, they're not playing. They're genuinely looking for the child. They can't find them. And they've tripped over them three times already. That's what the psalmist says it's like. When I was a student in Dundee, I shared a house with a a few young guys from all over the world. Uh, China, three of them came from um, mainland China. And chatting with these guys was very interesting, coming from a communist background and all that went with that. But yeah, a modern context and coming and living in, in the UK. I was just talking about my faith and sharing the gospel and, and so on with this young guy. And he said, you know what, that's fine for you. And that's where you've come from and that's your culture. You have your God, but I have my God, money. Money's my God. And that's literally what he said. Money's my God. Money is everything to me. And I'm going to pursue that with everything I have because that's what I love more than anything else in the world. Now, I hope that that isn't still the case. But his view was that my God can't be seen, isn't there. His God can be touched, pursued, saved, spent, built up, employed, whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, when he lies on his deathbed, what will his God be worth then? When he gets an incurable diagnosis, how will his God help him? When he struggles to know who he is and where he's going in life and what direction he should take, how will his God advise him? The psalmist says, death and judgment await all foolish people. 
And in light of that, their joy, their gods, are turned to ash, are shown to be empty and worthless. And when they need joy, a true sense of who they are and where their lives are headed the most, when they're left with nothing else, they find they've got nothing. And it seems harsh to call that person a fool, but there is no better name for it. And I want to challenge you this morning as we think about that theme of worship, and as we think about the trade that we have with the world where we could worship, but equally we could do that. We could go there. We could be part of this thing, whatever it might be. Is that trade worth it? Really? Is it ultimately what will bring us joy and satisfaction and contentment, or is it just plastic toys for a time? The problem that we face as Christians is that we claim a new life, a life directed towards God, and yet it is completely steeped in the foolish way. We're surrounded on all sides by people and influences that lead us back to the old way, to seeing things the old way. And so when we don't read Scripture regularly as as a, a daily discipline, we then wonder six months down the line why we feel so distant from God. We don't feel God's speaking to us at all. It's because we don't listen to his voice. We don't prioritize worship in the home with our family or with friends or as individuals day by day, morning and evening, or being here together each week. And then we wonder why when we come to worship, it just doesn't really satisfy the way it used to. I don't get what I need out of worship. There's no real passion. There's no real fervency there. Well, of course there isn't. We've lost the taste for it. We've been absent so long, we've forgotten what it's really like. Even sometimes when we turn up week by week, we're here, but we're not really here. We have no appetite for it. It's unusual to us. There's no heat there because we're not feeding an ongoing fire. We're trying to kindle a whole new fire every Sunday morning when the first hymn is announced and we stand up to sing. That should be part of a process, not the beginning of one. So that we're up to temperature when we head back out into the world. A worshipping life, the psalmist says, is a fruitful life. And the reason it's a fruitful one is because the ongoing worshipping life is a constantly fed life. Not a, a gorged, a glutted life where we're just binging all the time on whatever we fancy, but the kind of life that is constantly nourished at a sufficient level so that we grow in strength and in vigor and in vitality. And part of our healthy diet, if I can put it that way, is our worship together. It is not an optional extra. It is an absolute essential. And I had a conversation this week that made me smile with someone when we were talking about um, the Christmas services. And, you know, we were saying that it was great on Christmas Eve and, you know, the church was virtually full and we were, we had a great time together. And then I said, oh, you know, on Christmas Day, there was, oh, I don't know, a dozen, maybe, maybe closer to, to 15 or 16 on, on Christmas Day. And I said, but, you know, people are busy and, and everything else. And the comment that came back, which made me smile, was, yeah, but what did we do in the old days? Church was always full. Everybody always came to church. And I get it. I get it. We're busy. We are busy. Life changes, and there's nothing um, prescribed in Scripture as to say that you must meet at half past ten on Christmas Day morning to worship. And I understand that. 
that's fine. But my concern is that we express an attitude that says, I want to worship. And that might be at home with your family. And that's fantastic. And that's totally fine. And God bless you in that. But there needs to be a desire for us to be together and to pour everything we have into worship. It's one of those complaints that you hear, especially in young churches. The older churches are, are, are lifeless, are dead. And the churches that are peopled by nothing but 20-year-olds are full of life and, and vigor and vitality. And I'm not sure that's actually true. What we want isn't necessarily froth on the surface. What we want is the substance. We want people who are truly impacted by the Word and the Spirit of God. I want you to be built up and encouraged and challenged and fed and nourished so that when you come, you're eager to worship. And it might not be the best show in town. We might not have fog machines and lasers you know, and a Hollywood production at the front. And as long as I'm here, that's never going to happen. But that's not necessary. What we want is a body of people who are fervent about the words they're singing. It doesn't matter if the song six centuries older was written two weeks ago by one of our young people. But what matters is the fervency of our hearts as we pour ourselves into adoring God as part of a regular diet, a regular discipline. This is what we do because this is who we are. Because a worshipful life is one that produces fruit. Look at how the psalm ends. The psalmist says... You have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. Now, that's a kind of weird saying, but the purpose of that saying is to say this, that you have built me up. The whole point in in the language of a horn in the Old Testament and in the New is one of um, authority, of position. It is an idea of a crown on a ruler's head. Somebody who stands there and is seen, is noticed as someone who is different. And that's the language here. You have built me up. You have made me to be seen by all these other people. Who? The fools. They see me. They look at me. They see I'm different. And I'm different because I'm a worshipping person and it's bearing fruit. They're noticing the difference in my life. I don't look like them because you're building me up in light of the worshiping life that I have. You've poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of them. But the righteous, the righteous flourish like the palm tree, grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are the picture of vigor and vitality. They bear fruit. They're planted in the house of the Lord. You don't plant cedar trees inside. That's an idiotic thing to do. It destroys your house if you plant a cedar tree inside. Not the idea. The roots are embedded in the worshipping people of God, where they worship. They are embedded in the house of the Lord himself so that all their nourishment is drawn from that place and not from the place outside. So that even in old age when these plants should be withering away. They're still full of vigor and vitality. They're still growing fruit. They are still full of sap. They're green. They should be brown and withered and dying off. They're not. They're green in old age because they're part of God's worshiping people to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. Our lives should witness to our faith. But they should witness to our faith because our faith is living and is active and is being constantly fueled within us by our worshipping of this great 
God. This kind of life is like a crown to all those who have it. It's their glory. And it's what defines them as being different so that people can't help but see it. As we approach the new year and start thinking about 2020, what it'll look like, can I ask you to pray through this psalm? Just take a couple of verses at a time, one verse at a time, a line at a time, read it, think, what does this mean? What on earth is the psalmist saying? And then pray about it. Am I living the wise life or the life of the fool? Am I finding my joy in Christ or am I finding it in the world, constantly chasing but never acquiring? What needs to go on this year? What needs to be pulled away from me this year? If you need to give up Facebook this year because you find it's constantly leading you down this way of thinking of envy and of constantly needing to be liked by other people, then it's worth it. If you need to stop going certain places and stop watching certain things on the TV or or stop meeting with certain people because all you do is gossip with that person, it's going to hurt, but it'll be worth it. Because what you take away from that, you're then able to give over to your life of worship. Can I ask you to think about your worship at home with your family? What does it look like? What should it look like? Can I ask you to think about your worship with these people here week by week? If you're a visitor, then you get a pass on that one. But you can think about wherever you normally worship and the people that you normally worship with. But look around you. You meet with these people every week. You see these faces every single week. Do you look forward to being here at the starting place of the week each week? To be with that person. To talk about how good God's been. To talk about how you're looking forward to the coming week and glorifying God in all that you do. Can I ask you to think as we begin 2020 about what your worship will be like and will it center on giving thanks to the Lord? Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings see what the Lord has done. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for a year gone by. Lord, we give you thanks for a year that is to come. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that whatever uncertainty awaits us, we know that as your people, the one thing above all else we are called to do with absolute certainty is glorify you. It's be together to worship you, to serve you, to witness to you. doesn't matter whether we're looking at retirement or we're starting a new job or a new school or moving home or whatever it might be. Lord God, we are called to glorify you in all things. And so, Father, as we face 2020 as a people, as a family together, I ask that you would be with each and every one of my brothers and sisters here today and those who aren't. Lord, that you would bless them richly with a knowledge, with a desire, with a deep zeal for your worship, so that whatever else we do when we come to this time next year, we can say we have done that. We have glorified you. We have worshipped you. We have thanked you over and over and over and over, and we've made your name known amongst the people we live in. Lord God, we ask all of this because it's what you've made us for. And so we pray, in Jesus' name, you would send us out into the coming week to be your worshiping people wherever we are until we gather again on the Lord's day to praise your name. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.